Wow, thank you very much. Thank you, John. Thank you, Garden Oaks, for uh, letting me come up today and spend this July 4th weekend with you. You guys got big plans for July 4th? Outdoors people, you enjoying this 150 degree heat in Houston, huh? Yeah, well, hey, listen, uh, my name is Brad Kilgore. I am one of the pastors at the Met Church up in Northwest Houston that uh, has a great relationship and an opportunity to partner with you guys here in this community. And so John had reached out and said, hey man, I uh, uh, wanna go spend some time with my family. Do you have an opportunity to come and, and teach? And I said, sure, what are, you, what are we teaching on? And he says, well, we're in the book of Acts, so I'll send you the passage that, that where we are, and then you can choose if you wanna do a standalone or if you wanna just teach in the book of Acts. So he sent it over, and I thought, you know what? I feel like that God has something to say this morning in the book of Acts. We're gonna continue this journey. If you've been here during this series, uh, I'll pick up where John left off. But um, yeah, just to tell you a little bit about myself, um, we, my family and I, which is here to support me today, uh, actually spent a year long in Germany um, a year ago. So we got back in uh, June of last year, and we were over there doing some work with some churches that we had relationship with uh, on trying to help with relational discipleship. And uh, that's a picture of my family there. That's Maddie on the left. My wife Kelly, and that's Miles, who kind of leans a little bit. I don't know why he walks like that, but he's always leaning. But that is in, uh, called the Deutsch Eck. I don't know if you guys have been to Germany, but the Deutsch Eck is kind of a, a popular area where the Rhine River meets another river, and there's this historical area. So uh, this is a picture of us doing some life in Germany. Now, I don't know if any of you guys have ever lived abroad or uh, lived in a place where you didn't speak the language. How many, how many of you guys have, have been in a place where you didn't know the language? We got a couple of us. Well, several. Oh, a lot of hands go up. And I'm not talking about, you know, Kansas or Tennessee or, you know, Oklahoma. I'm talking about, yeah, a foreign language. Well, as you can imagine, one of the biggest barriers for us going to Germany was language. And, um, you know, you take things for granted when you move to a foreign country. Things as simple as, like, going to the grocery store, Right? I mean, here you go to the grocery store and it's pretty easy to communicate. The minute you walk in, you're hearing American music or music you're familiar with. You look at the labels on all the, the products and you understand without having to pick it up and look to see what's in it, kind of what it is. Uh, in Germany, not so much. Um, I tell you, Google Translate was probably the best thing for us when we got over there. I mean, I don't know how many times my wife and I would hold up what we thought was a jar of pickles and scan it and turns out it's some hot jalapeno from Russia or something. And so we had a very difficult time entering into our new life in Germany. Now we kind of expected there to be some barriers, but I don't think that we were really prepared for that. Um, things like encountering your neighbors, going next door, you know, introducing yourself, all of those things kind of were out the window for us. So we had to navigate this entry into a foreign country with learning how to communicate. And I thought that was kind of appropriate for where we are today in, in, in the message and this idea of, of, you know, the church and as disciples of Jesus, you know, our part and how we communicate the gospel, how we communicate our life, how we connect with people that God has put us in contact with, and understanding that there's going to be some barriers sometimes to making those connections. And so we're going to be in Acts 17, uh, finishing up really the last of this chapter. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts 17. We're going to be in verses um, 16, and then we're going to go all the way to verse 
34. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to be reading out of the NLT, but just love for you to follow along and kind of keep this in mind, if you would, this lens of discipleship. Okay, this lens of what it means to actually go and make disciples. You know, as Jesus gave us the Great Commission, he kind of told us, hey, this is the commandment I want of you, of us, of me. Not just the pastor, but of all of us, is go and make disciples. Okay, and he gave us the Holy Spirit to actually accomplish that. And the Holy Spirit, with the help of the apostles and those that were charged with making the church, actually created this, what we have here. So Jesus commanded it, the Holy Spirit is with us, and it's our part as the church to make disciples. So as I'm reading this, think through maybe what was on Paul's heart, what was on his mind as he's considering approaching this group in Athens. Chapter 17, verse 16 says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others even said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us what this new teaching they said. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For I, as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who has made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, hey, we want to hear more about this later. And that ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. See, Paul was 
in Athens, as, as John talked about last week, because he really had to flee Berea. He, he, had, he had gone to Thessalonica, was in Berea, and he actually fled there, got out of there, and ended up in Athens, where he was really alone. Uh, you know, Silas and Timothy were still back there. They hadn't joined him. But Paul finds himself in the story, as Luke writes, in Athens. And I want to just talk about really four main things that I've kind of pulled out of here and, and a lot of other Preachers have preached this message, so you may have heard this before, but I want to make them very specific to us, to you in Garden Oaks, and how we as a church go and make disciples. Um, Paul was alone, but Paul still saw the need to carry out what God called him to do. Um, there are four things that Paul did in this story. One thing is Paul, um, what did Paul see? We want to ask ourselves, what did Paul see? What did Paul sense? Where did Paul settle, and what did Paul say? I had to go all S's, right? I mean, I, I couldn't leave any other letter out. So I, I use the word settle in the one, but I'll make that sense. But what I want you to think about is where, what did Paul see when he was there? What did he um, sense? What, where did he settle, and what did he say? So Paul saw, it's pretty obvious right off the bat, Paul saw idols, Right? It says right at the beginning of this passage that Paul was, walk, was walk, waiting for them in Athens and he was deeply troubled by the idols he saw everywhere. Now, I don't know if you've been to Greece or, 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 or to Athens, but, but there's a lot of really beautiful things to see in Athens. I mean, there are, it's, a, it's a tourist attraction, but back then, right, it was full. It was considered one of the most idol-worshiping places around. And immediately when Paul arrives there, he could not help but see all over in the high places, low places, everywhere, these idols that were statues, that were things that these philosophers and the people of Athens, the intellectuals, and they were filled with this, they, all they, they saw were these idols, and they would erect these idols, and they would build these idols. They even had a council that would actually consider, okay, what, where do we need a another idol for? Do we need an idol of shame? Do we need an idol of guilt? Well, let, let, let's go build it. And then they would, they would contract that out, and then people would actually bid on to, bid that, to build the idols, and then they would get a contract, and they would construct the idols, and then they would build them all over the city. So what did Paul see? Paul saw idols. He saw things that people were worshiping that was not the God that he was preaching. In fact, you saw in there that he even calls out in, in, in there that they had an inscription on one of the idols that says, to the unknown God. Now, I don't know why they, they chose to write that. There's a lot of scholars that believe that, that maybe, maybe there was a thought that there is another God, but they couldn't name that God at that moment. So they, they, this whole place that Paul enters into by himself is full of idols. He saw plenty of idols. And it troubled him. In fact, that, that, that word troubled is actually a word that, that gets translated and transliterated even from the Greek. It's, it means provoked. You know, it's not this, this idea, well, you know, I, I saw that idol and I was just really bothered by it and I just kept walking. No, Paul was deeply, deeply troubled by it. He sensed, what did Paul sense? Paul sensed that. The psalmist in 16.4 writes, troubles multiply for those who chase after the other gods. He says, I will not take part in their sacrifices of blood or even speak the names of their gods. 
So you have to understand, right, when Paul enters in here, he's, he's bringing forth a really Christian worldview, you know? I mean, he was, a, he was a follower of Christ. He had a major encounter with Christ. He saw him. He changed his ways from, his, from as a Pharisee to, to, to killing Christians and persecuting them to actually shifting his worldview to follow the way, to follow the gospel, to follow the one true God. But Paul wasn't dealing with people necessarily that adopted this, this same Christian worldview. In fact, that's probably the opposite of the perspective that a lot of people Paul encountered in that place. You know, today we, we consider idols probably some other things, you know, if we're being honest. I mean, we don't see often many things, you know, statues erected and people worshiping, although they do exist. I mean, even this morning, I, we, we stopped at the donut shop and I walk in and I look to my right and there is a, there is a, a cat there in the donut shop, you know, I don't know if you've seen them, right? And I, I couldn't help but think, wow, I'm going to be talking about this today. And here it is, this, this porcelain cat that was sitting in this donut shop that I believe is there for good fortune for them. And I thought, wow, even something as simple as this beautiful donut shop, there's these idols that are still there. But for you, for me, for us, maybe the idols that, that we contend with look a little bit different. And I would suggest that an idol doesn't necessarily have to be something that is made from a craftsman that we set somewhere and that we go to every day. An idol is actually anything that separates us from our relationship with God. Anything that we put in the place of that relationship with God. It could be work. It could be career. It could be success. It could be those things that you're like, you know what, if I could only get this particular promotion, then, or if I could only get the, it, it could be your family. It could be your kids. I mean, honestly, this is introspective for each of us as we sit here today, you know? Idol could be pleasing people. It could be something, man, I just want people to like me. My idol today being up here could be, man, I just have to say the right things. You know, something that separates what God's like, no, why don't you just go and be you and speak about my word? An idol can be peer approval, money, sex, pleasure, food, sports, education, power, entertainment, and many, many more. Just as it bothered Paul, and that provokes Jesus, provokes God, I feel like those are the things that we as disciples of Jesus have to consider before we ever plan on even going and making disciples of Jesus. So it's clear what Paul saw. What did Paul sense? How did he feel? What did it make him feel like when he went there? Well, we, we saw it right off the bat. It says he was deeply troubled. We just talked about that idea of provoking Deuteronomy 9, 7 says, Remember and never forget how angry you made the Lord your God out in the wilderness. From the day you left Egypt until now, you have been constantly rebelling against him. What else did Paul sense? Well, he, he actually, if you read through the passage, he, he sensed the need to reason with them. We'll talk a little bit more about the different, the different 
pieces and the people that he encountered. That, that, but he sensed this need to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. You know, he goes to the synagogue to reason with them. But Paul didn't do this in a very riotous way, you know. Last, we looked at, when John spoke last week, he talked about the riots that were happening because of the uproar of the guys being there preaching the gospel. And Paul had seen that, I mean, but he, when he entered into this place, he actually decided, you know, I'm, I'm not going in here to create calamity. I'm not going in here to create riots so they understand what I'm saying. He actually went into the approach of reason. Paul reasoned with those he interacted with. What else did Paul sense? Well, he sensed the need to approach. If you see there, the, the, the really three main places where Paul shared this message was the synagogue, the marketplace, and a place called Areopolis, or Mars Hill, it may have been referred to. But he sensed the need to approach those in the marketplace to whoever was there. You know, being there by himself, he certainly could have just avoided those people. I mean, nobody was watching, right? Timothy and Silas were still not there. He was by himself. But his conviction to what God had called him to do and the conversion and the radical transformation that happened in his life made him say, you know what? I don't care. I'm alone. I'm going to approach everyone I can and share this good news. I don't know about you, but... That's kind of convicting. You know, even our time in Germany, we got to know our neighbors quite a bit, and, and, but, I, but we never really, with, because of the language barrier and just other insecurities, we never really just straight up approached them with the, the truth of God's word. We lived our life according to God's word. We were modeling what a Christian, how a Christian should live. We were interacting and we were being relational and we were talking to them, but short of really approaching them hard with the gospel, we just approached them with our life. And I feel like God is proud of us for that. But how about now? How about here in your neighborhood now? Where's your marketplace? I mean, this is the equivalent of the synagogue, right? You're here gathering together this morning. But what about outside of these walls in, guard, in, in this area, Garden Oaks, the Heights, you know, where God has planted you? I don't know about the community you live in. Do you know your neighbors? Do you sense maybe burden? Do you see idols? You know, have you determined that, you know what, maybe I need to approach He also felt, Paul felt passionate to proclaim the one true God. I mean, we see that in that chunk of passage there where he speaks about who God is, what he's done, the blood of Jesus, the resurrection, and the hope that we have. He preached that to these foreigners, these people with non-Christian worldviews. Where did Paul settle? I use this word subtle because I had to have an S word because it had to match with the rest of them. But the idea of he didn't really settle if you think about it, right? So maybe I should have said, where did Paul not settle? Paul moved. Okay, it happens very quickly in the beginning of the passage, but it talks about him going to the synagogue. And he met those Jews and God-fearing Greeks right where they were, speaking their language, understanding how to communicate effectively to these people. I mean, these guys knew the scriptures. 
You know, they had the scrolls. They, they, they understood it, as John talked about last week. They memorized most of it. They knew the word. But Paul reasoned with them in their environment, spoke their language, and communicated with them in a very, very loving way. He also went to the marketplace. You know, and this word marketplace, I think you could probably make a connection to, to, to today, but really it's, it was a place where all your daily business was done. You know, it was a place you'd go to shop, you would go visit, you would probably go interact with some of your friends. Maybe the modern day mall. You know, it's a place that Paul knew people were going to be because people were always there. But one of the things that Paul did when he went there is he met them right where they were. See, I believe Paul had to have known, and as Christians, I think we should know that when we encounter these places, there are a lot of people carrying around a lot of stuff that are probably seeking hope in their life and not knowing how to even ask for it. But for Paul, when he entered into this place, he, he begins to interact and begins to share the good news. He even quotes some of their, 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 their philosophers in, in this passage. He, he tells them, look, I know that you're very religious people when he gets to Areopagus. But one of the things that Paul did is he didn't settle in one place. He settled in multiple places. You know, the Epicurean and the Stoics were, were, were rampant in this area. They, they, were, they were identified kind of in those camps. And really the Epicureans at that time lived really to enjoy pleasure. You know, their, their focus on life was to just live a life of pleasure. And kind of that YOLO attitude, you know, look, you only live once. All right, let's just engage. Let's just do whatever makes us happy. This is how we're going to live. The Stoics were, were, were pantheists. You know, they believed that, well, God is only found in nature. You know, you see God in nature. That, that that's, that's kind of karma. What comes around goes around. Look, we can't control what happens? So this was his audience of intellectuals and people that he was engaging with. And then he got asked to go to Areopagus, to Mars Hill. And in this area, it was a totally different environment than the synagogue and the marketplace. Areopagus was a place where a lot of the, the real intellectual people would go and talk about the daily problems, talk, try to solve the daily things. And, they, and Scripture tells us there that he was invited to come and share this same thing that they had heard in the marketplace. I guess the people there thought he was, the message was worthy enough to be brought to this high place. And Paul gets there, and this is when he delivers the truth of who God is, what he's done for us, and the fact that he sent his only son, and that's the way that we're going to have life. See, Paul's stories throughout Acts, through his missionary journeys, you know, he, 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 you don't always see where he adjusted this specific communication to this specific crowd. Now, he was a pretty smart, very intelligent man who preached the word and the truth, probably without regard. But what's interesting here is how sensitive he was to the people that he was doing life with. I mean, yeah, I mean, where are you 
with that? What does that stir in you? Do you immediately figure, think of places where God has you and you go, you know what, I actually do a pretty good job at that. I'm emotionally connect. I sense what my neighbors are going through. We actually have a great relationship, but you know what? I have never really shared my faith. Or yeah, I go to the workplace and I, yeah, I feel it. I sense people are burdened sometimes, but you know, I don't know. Not today. I'm not going to talk to them. Are you just settling in one place? Have you just decided, you know, this is, this is where I'm at, and yeah, I know that they need Jesus, or they need Jesus over here, but you know what, this message is just going to be right here, where God has me right now, and I'm going to settle, or are we looking, and are we moving, are we listening, where God has us planted? Because as the disciples of Jesus, discipleship happens outside of these walls. I would, I would argue that most of the discipleship that we're going to encounter, and that's happened to me, has been outside, honestly, the church walls has been in living rooms, has been at coffee shops, has been out for a walk. The conversations, the questions, I mean, this is what Paul's approach was in the marketplace. The, he, he used the Socratic method, and it was just listening and asking questions. You realize that a lot of times asking a question can provoke some pretty interesting conversation with somebody that really knows you care about them? The Holy Spirit, because he's partnered with us, Jesus left the Holy Spirit here to be with us. When the Holy Spirit is indwelled in those conversations, I promise you things will become illuminated to maybe you ask another question. And it could lead to opening God's word. It could lead to sharing your personal story of struggles that God freed you from. It could lead to whatever God has in store for that person. But the idea of Listening well and asking questions sometimes is the opening door to a great, beautiful conversion conversation. Because at the end of the day, discipleship starts with evangelism, and that's what Paul was doing. You know, you, you think about our spiritual growth. We, we, we start as spiritually dead. We come into this world, we're spiritually dead. And until someone shares the gospel or shows us what it looks like, we don't walk into spiritual life. But when we do choose, and maybe you have chose, you've walked into spiritual life, you become what we call a spiritual infant, right? Just like the physiological realm. When you're born, you're an infant. And as infants, we need certain things in our spiritual walk. But we also, there are things that we can't digest. I mean, you wouldn't go into, have a baby, have a brand new baby, right? You get home from the hospital, you go to the living room, feed him a bottle, and decide, you know what, he'll probably be hungry in a couple of hours. Hey, little Johnny, there's a steak in the fridge, okay? It's medium rare. You might not like it, but certainly you can eat it and then walk away and leave that child there to fend for themselves, to feed for themselves. In the spiritual way, sometimes we do that. And from infancy, we grow into become a spiritual child, Certain needs still become me-focused. You know, this is, life is about me. Why can't I? Where's my? Will you do this? You know, but we begin to grow a little bit. And as we grow into becoming a young, young adult spiritually, our, our needs and the approach become different. And then from a young adult into a parent, when we're kind of helping to grow and reproduce disciples, each one of those stages of growth requires certain types of communication. 
A spiritual infant isn't going to receive this and me leaving and going, hey, you know what, just read John, the Gospel of John, and I believe the Lord will speak to you. And he, he will, I guarantee it, right? But I don't leave them with that as a spiritual parent. I may, I may do that. Hey, why don't you go through the New Testament over the next six months, and then we'll talk about it together. I share this illustration because I really believe the central theme to this particular passage is Paul's willingness to meet people right where they were and communicate the gospel effectively. Not control the outcome. That's God's part. Paul's part was to deliver the truth. So we see what Paul saw. We know what he sensed. We know where he settled. And we just talked a little bit about what he said. You know, we can sometimes take our synagogue message into the marketplace or our marketplace message into the synagogue and see very little results. And this is going to be very specific to each person in this room. Not, as, not only has God given you a community, Sometimes we can, we can miss the opportunity for that community to, to thrive in their spiritual growth because we're, we're, we're speaking the wrong message. I loved in this passage when Paul even quotes some of the philosophers, the poets. You know, I believe this is the best way to connect with people is when you understand where they are and you speak their language. You know, I believe Paul intentionally did that to draw a connectivity with these people so that when he got to sharing the good news that they were able to receive it. The way the gospel was presented here wasn't just one part. You see that Paul goes through from creation to the cross to the resurrection. He talks about God as the creator. He talks about God as the sustainer. He speaks as God is the ruler, God being all-knowing. He talks about the father of humanity, even quoting those two poets. And he even speaks to that God is both judge and the rescuer. What do you say to those that you encounter? Are you adjusting your approach to the audience God has put in your life? And this is between you and the Lord, right? Nobody's following you around, but just as Paul was alone, I think that we have a responsibility, hopefully, to make disciples in the, in the environments where he's put us. And what was the result of all this? It says in 32, it says, when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. Not everybody's gonna receive it. Some people may mock at you. But others said, we want to hear more. And then it says, but some joined him and became believers. Some came to the family of faith because Paul's willingness to meet people where they were. A member of the council that was in Areopagus actually said, you know what, I think that I need to follow Christ. I need to set these idols down and I need to actually be somebody who follows the way, Paul. 
so difficult entering into a foreign country. You know, like I talked about earlier, and I kind of used a little bit of the supermarket analogy, but there's a whole other side of that as we worked with churches. There's a culture that is there that I didn't understand. I had gotten some coaching going before we went over there, and my family and I, and, and I, you know, I was told one of the things is, hey, don't go straight into it just trying to pour the American culture, Western culture onto them, go into it, spend the first couple of months just listening. I thought, man, that's, that's great advice. It's hard to do sometimes. So I would sit in these meetings at these churches with a translator, and you know, that was kind of my norm. My life was just the site. I had a translator with me all the time. A lot of them spoke English, but some of them didn't want to speak English, even if they could. They felt like I needed to speak German, which I totally get. But my norm was sitting and listening and taking a lot of notes, whether it was in a an elder meeting or whether it was in a leadership team meeting or even out and about at other churches where I'd, I'd had an opportunity to speak at, I would just listen. And once I found that listening actually earned some equity with these people, when I began to actually share, hey, this is kind of what I'm seeing, this is what I'm sensing, there, there was an open ear to it almost. It was like, okay. And there were many, many opportunities that I had to stand before churches and preach, always with a translator. You know, without that translator, my communication to those people would probably have been falling on probably 50% of them's deaf ear. They, they just wouldn't have understood it. But because of the translator, the message that God had given, I could, I could present. There was this um, opportunity that I got to preach and I was a little unsure about the message. I was a little unsure about the translator, the cadence, the rhythm. It was very weird. It was kind of hard. But I stuck with what God had asked me to share. And we were, we were teaching. I was teaching that on, on um, one Sunday morning. And actually had a Sunday night service. And so I sat up there. This was the third time I was, I was preaching it. So I felt a lot more comfortable. But as I began uh, to preach and Speak. I, I started seeing this woman that was sitting right here just kind of getting pretty emotional. And COVID was still pretty bad back then, so everybody had masks, so you, but I could see her eyes. And I thought, wow, she's, man, maybe the Lord's just doing something. So I, as I finished the message, um, I walked off. As a, it was a room very, very similar to this. I walked off the stairs and began to sit down, and she comes straight to me, her eyes welled up in tears, just weeping. And she says to me, with broken English, she said, I need to talk to you. And I said, okay. She says, I need to talk to you tomorrow. Now, the offices were closed at the church, so nobody was there. So I, in my head, I'm trying to figure out, okay, well, I can't meet with you alone. I said, I, I tell you what, why don't I, I'll volunteer my wife and my kids to come up here with me tomorrow. And we'll sit in the sanctuary, and I'll make myself available. She says, okay. So we scheduled a time, 10 a.m. the next morning. The family and I drove to the church. She was there waiting. When we get there, we grab a spot in the back of the sanctuary, and the family was in a, a room with glass right, right behind us. And she began to talk. And she said, she pulled a note card out of her 
purse, and it had James 5, 16 written on it. See, in that message, I referenced that passage, but I didn't preach on that passage. I used it as a supporting passage. In James 5, 16, it's the passage that says, confess your sins one to another. The prayer of a righteous person, or through the prayer of the righteous, you will be healed. I'll probably paraphrase that, but that was the gist of it. She wrote it down, and she looked at that. She says, I need to do this. And so I'm like, okay, and broken English, and I'm, I'm struggling with, okay, well, man, I don't have any special words to say, but I said, you know what, God, please walk with me during this. So she began to share a confession that she had only shared to one person before. And it was something that she had done that she was ashamed of. And she was carrying this shame from this decision for years. But for whatever reason, she felt like she could talk to me about this. And as she confessed that, I pointed her to truth. I pointed her to God's forgiveness, God's grace, God's mercy, God's character, God's desire to restore relationship, God's love for her. And we prayed. And she asked for forgiveness. And I pray that God would, would remove the guilt and the shame, that she would leave it in that room, lay it at the foot of the cross, that she would be freed from any anxiety, guilt, stress, that she could walk out of that room feeling completely freed, and that's all I knew how to pray. And after we prayed, she, she you know, kind of, you could see the tears, you could see a little bit of relief in her. She says, I have not been able to get this off my mind. It's always on my mind, every waking moment. I can, I've never been able to get it off my mind, but I, I'm kind of free from it. And we praised God for that moment. We praised God. But here's where it gets beautiful. I would see her every so often at church. We never really interacted. It was kind of, hi, how are you doing? I never followed up with her to see how she was doing. About four months later, she found me at church, and she ran up to me, and she grabbed me by the arm, and she says, Brad, Brad. She'd been married for about a year, and they'd been trying to have a child. She said, Brad, Brad, we're pregnant. And I'm like, what? She said, we're pregnant. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's so awesome. How far along are you? She said, we're four months pregnant. See, four months ago, I had stood up on a stage, kind of preached a good message, I thought, maybe with a translator that was helping me communicate, but I delivered a message out of the truth of God's word the best way I knew four months ago, and that lady came up to me and had to be freed from just the shame that she'd been carrying for years. They had been trying to have a child for the whole year that they'd been married with no avail. But I believe that when she gave that to Jesus, put it at the foot of the cross, that her body was in a place where it could do what it's naturally supposed to do. Amen. Now, I share that story not, not as a boasting story for me. I share it as a boasting story for God. I share it as a story of when we're obedient to go to the places that God puts us, communication barriers or not, and we just share what God has put in our heart, let him do the transformation. 
It's not our part. That's God's part. Our part is obedience. And as Paul shows us here very, very beautifully in this story, he was obedient where God put him in a place full of idols. He met people right where they were. He spoke their language. And people came to know Jesus. And so my challenge for all of us, for you guys here in this community, as God is revitalizing your church, he's revitalizing relationships. This church was planted here years ago, but the community looks different. But you guys are that community that are going to impact this community. I'm not. You are. So my prayer for you and the challenge really for us today as the church and for you as a church in this community God has you is what are you seeing, what are you sensing, where are you settling, and what are you saying? And I want you to be encouraged because I I know what God's doing here right now is not intended to stay here, but it's intended to meet all nations making disciples and doing your part one at a time will continue this thing we call the church and we'll storm the gates of hell and he will not prevail. Amen. Would you pray with me?